was going to mention that um, we have been in a series this Easter tide, the the weeks following the Sunday celebration of Easter, where we've been focusing on what it is to be the family of God together. And I'm feeling it as you all um, chat with each other this morning, and it's not the easiest to get your attention. That can be a good thing. That means that connections are happening. But we're taking a break in that series this morning because we have a special opportunity this morning to hear from Curtis Chang. Many of you may know Curtis. He is one of us. He has been a part of the river for uh, over 20 years. Actually, um, you may or may not know uh, that back in the day, Curtis was on our pastoral staff. So uh, we have the wonderful opportunity to hear from Curtis. Um, it's always a good day to hear from Curtis, but this particular opportunity comes because Curtis has just written a, a book that's been released into the world, The Anxiety Opportunity. Yeah. The Anxiety Opportunity was released into the world this week. This is something that Curtis has been working on for um, a while now, and so it's exciting to see it come to fruition. It is such a timely resource in this um, season of uh, mental health challenge in our environment. Um, and so Curtis is going to speak to us out of some of the wisdom that is here in this book. Um, and then there will be opportunity, and I'll mention this later, to potentially purchase a book to go deeper with the, the work that Curtis has done. But um, I want to uh, just commend to you this opportunity to hear from Curtis. I have known Curtis for over 20 years, and um, I have so much respect and admiration for him. He has a keen mind. Um, I, Curtis is wicked smart, and I um, appreciate the deep theological reflection that Curtis does with the scriptures. Curtis is also um, a gifted communicator. I learn from him every time that I hear him teach about ways to bring uh, words to life and impact in, in for people. And so these alone are enough to commend um, Curtis to you today. But what I really want to say, that what is at the core of my admiration and respect for Curtis, is that Curtis is a disciple of Jesus. He is someone who has walked with Jesus for years in uh, vulnerability. So he will tell some of that story this morning, that Curtis, uh, it has not been an easy road for him at all seasons, and where he has ultimately found his strength and the, the resource that he needs is in the person of Jesus. And so he brings that um, integrity to us this morning. So I want to, with that, encourage you to welcome Curtis Chang. I didn't know Michelle was from Massachusetts, like wicked smart. This, uh, this is a thing I didn't know that was in her toolkit there. Um, I'm really glad to be here. I, as Michelle said, I've written a book, and it is an oddly titled book. Uh, the book is called The Anxiety Opportunity. And when people hear that, sometimes they say, what? The Anxiety Opportunity? Because those are not two words you often see paired together. Normally, when we think about anxiety, we think about it this way, the anxiety problem, the anxiety problem. And all the statistics show it is a problem. It is an intensifying and increasing problem. As a sign, just to pull out two data points, a sign of how it's an increasing problem, 
Uh, if you went to look at the percentage of college students suffering from an anxiety disorder in 2010, it was already pretty high, one in 10. 2019, it was one in four. That's an amazing level of increase in a very short period of time. Or think about the intensity of this problem. Where it's hitting especially hard is in the teen girl crisis. Just last year, for last year, or the most recent statistics from the CDC, uh, in terms of the, there were 57% of teen girls were suffering from some anxiety or depression. Uh, 57%, that's like almost two and three. And 30% have contemplated suicide because of the intensity of their suffering. That's a crisis. That seems like that's a problem. And it's a problem not just of those age ranges, but all the statistics show in adults as well. So it does seem like we have an anxiety problem. And it's certainly a problem I am well-versed in. I have lived with anxiety for most of my life, ever since I was a child. I didn't know it as a child because I grew up in the 1970s in a fundamentalist Christian church and as a Chinese American. You put all three of those together, we just didn't have the categories. We did not have labels for mental health, mental health disorders, or for anxiety. And so growing up, even though I was an anxious child, I developed what psychologists call highly functioning anxiety. So highly functioning anxiety is where you actually have deep chronic anxiety, but you develop coping mechanisms to function in the world. And actually, it seems like you're doing well in the world because that anxiety drives seemingly really helpful behavior. So for me, it was, for instance, I would really plan ahead. With everything I did, I would plan ahead and I would research meticulously as a way to cope with my anxiety. And society rewards you for those coping mechanisms. Until, until those functional anxiety becomes dysfunctional anxiety. And our coping mechanisms actually have a way of backfiring on us if that underlying anxiety is unaddressed and still present uh, and, and growing often. So just as an example, when I uh, got into high school, I suffered from social anxiety. And so I would be thinking about going to a party where there might have been a girl that I was really attracted to, and I would get really anxious about it. So I would kick in with my meticulous planning. And so I would plan very carefully the outfit that I would wear to this party. And since this is the 1980s, that was a blue Izod, uh alligator shirt with the blue very carefully chosen to reflect the exact hue of my acid wash jeans, right? So it was, like, it was like really well put together. And then I needed to do some research, right? So what I would do would be I would seek to research from my sister, my older sister, Bertie, who was like one of the cool, you know, girls in the, in the high school. She was like a cheerleader. Not she was like a cheerleader. She was a cheerleader. Um, and so you, you get the picture, right? So I would just, you know, the, the night party, I've got my outfit put together, and I would casually try to keep it cool, you know, sort of saunter before her and just kind of let slip casually, like, hey, Bird, I'm thinking of wearing this outfit to the party. What do you think? Not that I really care. Um, and then so, so Birdie then would be like this. She would, she would look me up and down. And then she would say, you could wear that, <laughs> I guess, and then walk away. 
right? And then my anxiety had just like multiplied by 10, right? But that, that coping mechanism had completely backfired because like, did, did acid wash jeans suddenly go out of style? Like, that's impossible, right? So it just completely backfired on me and I was left more anxious than ever. And this is the nature of coping mechanisms to anxiety, they can backfire. And the more spectacular way, the more catastrophic example of this backfiring for me happened in my adult life here at the river. As Michelle said, uh, I was actually, uh, in 2005, uh, appointed to replace the lead pastor, and we did a little creative thing with the leadership structure, but virtually I was replacing the founding pastor, a guy named Keith Zaffron. Uh, some of you still remember him. And uh, even before Keith left, the church, by the metrics of classic church growth, was declining. We were already losing numbers and finances. And so when I assumed that role, no one quite said this, but I sort of felt and I naturally assumed my role is to stem and potentially reverse this decline. And so, of course, all of my coping mechanisms of being a highly functional, anxious person kicked in. Again, I didn't have the language for that at the time. And so I did research, I was planning, I was thinking, I was working hard. And I did not realize how that functional anxiety was increasingly becoming dysfunctional. For me, where that happens, I've now since realized the first warning signs of that happening is in my sleep. So I was starting to sleep less and less, seven and a half hours to seven to six to five. Now, I couldn't really recognize or admit I was feeling anxious, so I just told myself, this is being functional because I need more time. I've got more responsibilities. I need more time to work, to plan, and think. I'm waking up to do this, right? But then it came five, then four, three, and then uh, in 2005, uh, around June, I went through a period of two weeks where I did not consciously sleep at all for two weeks straight. I must have had experienced a micro sleep because your body just needs to do that. We have a sleep expert right here. He's nodding with me. But I don't remember consciously falling asleep for two weeks in a row. And around day 10, I was alone in my house. I remember I just started screaming. I started screaming. I said, God, just make this stop. I will do anything. I will say anything. I will believe anything. Just make this stop. And then in the very next moment, I realized, oh, so this is how Guantanamo Bay works. Like, this is why interrogators, are, you know, around the world are tempted to use sleep deprivation and it's banned by the Geneva Convention precisely because it's torturous. It is, it inflicts deep, deep, it feels like your mind is fracturing in a million pieces, right? And so it was catastrophic. It was a catastrophic failure and devastation in my life, emotionally, psychologically, I had, I slid into, into depression, which is often happens with chronic anxiety. It slides very easily into chronic depression. Uh, so I went into a, a very severe depression, uh, went on disability, and then even after I recovered uh, at some fundamental level, psychologically and emotionally and health, mental, sort of basic mental health, spiritually, I was just devastated. I was in a very dark place. You don't go through something like that and retain kind of spiritual equilibrium. And so I ended up realizing, I can't do this ministry thing. And it was, ministry was the only career I had known at that point. And so I had to resign from being a pastor. And this is why I'm a former pastor. 
and then Brad had to take over. And this is like, you didn't know that? This is why the river is such a great place, because you've been on like a 15-year upgrade plan, you know, <laughs> ever since. Um, but I, but I, my life was, was kind of in a shambles, right? And when you're uh, in that place, what happens is you're asking this question, why? Why did this happen? And for years, I was asking this question, why? Now, there's different ways you can ask the question why when faced with a catastrophe. So think about the catastrophe of Katrina, the Katrina hurricane. And you can think, well, why did that happen? Well, you can try to ask that question why from a level of external high-level causes, right? because there was this Gulf Stream with this wind pattern and with climate change and so forth that led to a perfect set of conditions that conspired together to produce a Category 5 storm. And you can try to apply that level of analysis to anxiety, to the level of teen anxiety, for instance. There's a lot of researchers who are starting to put together the pieces, and it's a complex set of causes, combining the rise of smartphones with social media and some chronic factors of social isolation and, and, uh, indiv and loneliness, right, that has created this perfect storm of, 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 of anxiety. And for my, in my particular case, back in 2005, you could say, well, that was a perfect storm of kind of a dysfunctional understanding of church growth with a leadership structure that we should have done this differently and this and that, and that led to the catastrophe. But you can also ask a more practical question. So in the Katrina case, the more practical pressing question was, why did the levees break? Why did the structures that had been set up to hold and withstand any onslaught of external crisis, why did they break? And what they discovered was they were deeply flawed in their construction. They were deeply, deeply flawed, and it took a storm to reveal the hidden structural flaws in the levees. What I've come to realize is in terms of answering the question why, why this upsurge of anxiety and, and collectively and individually, it's because the levees are broken. The levees are deeply flawed. The ways that we have constructed anxiety in our understanding are deeply, deeply flawed. Because here's how we've constructed mentally, emotionally, and in practice, how we've constructed anxiety. We've started with what we said was the natural way to construct anxiety. It's a problem, the anxiety problem. But once you've established that as the foundation of your understanding of anxiety, that it is foundationally a problem, well then, what are you supposed to do with a problem? What are you looking for if you're faced with a problem? You're looking for a solution. And in our sort of Western modern scientific mindset, what is a metric of a absolute, what you know, 100%, this is a successful solution to a problem. What, has, what must be true, what have you done with the problem? To, You've made it go away. You have eliminated it. Right? So once you've started saying, this is a problem, it means I need a solution, and really the only effective solution is something that makes it go away, that eliminates it. Problem, solution, elimination. And this is our levy. This has been our historic levy, both in the church and, in, frankly, in broader society, but especially, especially in the church. And really, when we think about elimination, there's two standard ways now in our church we tend to look for anxiety elimination. So here, are the, here they are, too. We either pray it away 
or we prescribe it away. Pray it away or prescribe it away. So let me go through this in order. So pray it away. This is where we treat, this is our spiritual levy. This is where we construct, like, there must be some spiritual practice to make anxiety go away. Because underneath it, we think of anxiety as a spiritual problem, maybe as a lack of faith, or you're not close enough to Jesus, or you don't have the right character strength, or worse, it's actually even a sin. And so we have to pray enough to pray spiritually in a way. This was the construct that I had in my mind as a pastor. And this is why I could not actually admit it to myself or to anyone else, to my teammates or to the church, that I was deeply anxious. Because if anxiety is a lack of faith, if it's a spiritual problem, maybe even a sin, like now the new lead pastor is up there and confessing that to everybody, like I couldn't do that. So in addition to the anxiety and the external stress, I have internal shame now weighing down on top of all of that. And that pressure builds enormously. So that's what, now, some churches have evolved to like, no, 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 no. We don't want to stigmatize anxiety. We want to destigmatize anxiety. So we're not going to go with the pray it away, anxiety is a sin. Instead, it's a mental health disorder. It's a mental health problem. And therefore, we will outsource it to secular mental health. And what will secular mental health do? They will seek to prescribe it away. And prescribe is usually therapy or medication. Now, let me be clear. I've taken medica anti-anxiety medication. I've done hours, many, many hours of therapy. It definitely has a place. It definitely is helpful in terms of sometimes bringing anxiety and its symptoms down to manageable levels. Just like I absolutely believe there's room to pray when you're in the middle of anxiety. A absolutely. But when we engage with these elimination methods with that construct, that the goal here and the expectation here is we have to eliminate anxiety, well then, just like prayed away can actually backfire on you in terms of shame and end up becoming, actually multiplying your anxiety, actually so too prescribing it away, if we go into it with this expectation is, I have to get rid of this, right, can actually backfire. And actually, Mental health professionals, secular mental health professionals, are increasingly realizing they have constructed anxiety in a flawed fashion. This is Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari. She's, she, she, she's not a model. She's actually the world's leading <laughs> neuroscience researcher. Um, uh, and, and she's a psycho practicing psychologist as well. And I looked at her photos like, really? Like, I know, it really is her. Um, and. Um, and so she has been one of the leading voices to say, and as far as I know, she's not a Christian, but she's been sounding the alarm that secular mental health itself has constructed things poorly. Here's what she says. I believe we mental health professionals have made a terrible mistake. We've convinced people that anxiety is a dangerous affliction and that the solution is to eliminate it as we do with other diseases. But feeling anxious isn't the problem. The problem is that we don't understand how to respond constructively. We haven't right, found the right construction of anxiety, respond constructively to anxiety. That's why it's increasingly hard to know how to feel good. So we need a different construction of anxiety than the problem, solution, elimination construction. And that's why I wrote the book, is after years of reflecting on my own experience, on the research, and especially on scripture, I believe this is a flawed construction. That the, the, a much more sturdy construction 
and that one is biblically rooted, is this one. That anxiety is not just a problem. It, of course, has problematic aspects to it, but it is not to be fundamentally at the ground level, foundationally to be understood as a problem. It's to be understood as an opportunity, the anxiety opportunity. And once we've said, oh, wait, this is an opportunity, well, what do we want to do with opportunity? Well, we want to, like, go through them. We want to take advantage of them. We want to explore them. We want to go through them. And that anxiety is fundamentally not a condition to eliminate, to make go away, either prayer or prescription. It is an opportunity for us to actually go through. But it means we have to walk through it. We means, rather than pushing it away, we have to be willing to enter, enter anxiety. And if we can enter anxiety as a doorway to an opportunity, then we can experience growth, deep, deep, transformative growth that I've also experienced and that the scripture promises. That scripture, in fact, promises that anxiety is our primary opportunity for our spiritual growth. It's not just a, oh, okay, maybe you can make it work. It's our primary opportunity for spiritual growth and that approaching Jesus is the doorway. When we can go to anxiety, go through anxiety, we will meet Jesus at the doorway, right there. And he will take us by our hand and we will walk through it, not make it go away, but walk through it together. And the reason I believe that is from my own experience, but also from scripture. Because if we were to ask, well, how are people supposed to approach Jesus? And we looked at the gospel evidence for how people are supposed to approach Jesus. We, I did a little study of this. I looked at the book of Mark, and I did a, applied a little screen for how people approach Jesus. And I applied a screen of people who approach Jesus, in other words, who took the initiative, not just who Jesus approached, but who took the initiative. Then also people who approach Jesus in good faith. So I screen out like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then also people who approach Jesus personally. So not in, as a crowd, but in, as, as, a, as individuals or as small numbers of people. So if you apply this screen in the book of Mark, apply this screen, you'll find there are 29 such approaches that meet that criteria, 29 approaches. Of that, 15 of them, over half, shown strong textual evidence of anxiety. So in the gospel story itself, there is some word that strongly uh, conveys anxiety. They were in fear. They were worried. They implore Jesus, which is a verb that connotes emotional distress. So there's some textual evidence of anxiety, well over half, or over half, slightly over half. But then there's another 12 that show possible but not definitive evidence of anxiety. So maybe there's no text word that says that, but there's some behavioral inference. So classic example, Mark 2, the friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus. There's no like verb about anxiety in there, but you know, a group of friends who tear open the roof of a complete stranger's house to get their way, they're not exactly acting in a calm, collected fashion, right? There's some emotional distress and you know, anxiety in place there. So 12 possible but not definitive evidence. There's actually only two approaches to Jesus that show absolutely zero signs of anxiety. They're found in uh, Mark chapter 14. So one is the woman who anoints Jesus uh, with the ointment right before his death. And she's clearly meant as an outlier. Jesus says so as much. Whenever a story is told of me, this woman is going to be known because she's an extraordinary example. Right? She's an outlier. The other parallel is Peter who approaches Jesus and confidently says, Lord, I will never betray you. And that, I think, is meant to be an ironic <laughs> example because a few passages later, Peter is very anxious in denying Jesus in front of the crowd, right? So practically all of the approaches to Jesus 
happen at the doorway of anxiety. They are people who are bringing Jesus, who are approaching Jesus in their anxiety. It's not like they've eliminated and gotten rid of it and then can only grow spiritually. It's through anxiety, by going through anxiety to Jesus, that they approach Jesus. And these anxious approaches to Jesus cover a broad range of types of anxiety. There's health anxiety. There's examples of spiritual anxiety where you're, you're afraid of what you know, God might think of you. Social anxiety, physical safety anxiety, provision anxiety. Basically, any anxiety that you are feeling, you have a, like a playbook in the Gospels to know how to approach Jesus through that anxiety, almost any kind. And so we come to Jesus through our anxiety. And the promise, as I said, is growth, spiritual growth. And this is the growth. Because if we have come to Jesus through our anxiety, Jesus brings us first to be present. To be present and then to be present to the Father. That's Jesus' role, is to help us to be present to the Father. And we can break that down to be the two ways, to be present and to the Father. Now, my book explains a lot of the different ways, the creative, wonderful, redemptive ways that through anxiety, Jesus brings us to be present to the Father. I'm going to give you two examples uh, to experience today. So first, to be present. To understand why anxiety is an opportunity for Jesus to help us to be present, you have to understand the essential nature of anxiety. Anxiety is about the future. Jesus says this in his classic teaching in Matthew 6, when he says, he's talking, teaching the crowds about anxiety. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Notice the time frame that Jesus is diagnosing the essential nature of anxiety. It's the future. It's will. Will eat, will drink, or will put on. And if you know, this crowd just didn't quite catch on. A few verses later, Jesus underlines this emphasis on the future. And he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, the future, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Ang anxiety resides in the future, right? And sufficient for this day, the, this present day, is its own trouble. If you want to picture how this works, anxiety is a hijacker. Anxiety is a hijacker. Anxiety, you're in the present. What anxiety does is it hijacks your mind to the future. And because the future is not the present reality, then your mind can generate all sorts of scenarios. Anxiety, in fact, starts like taunting you like a hijacker with all these scenarios. A scenario is an imagined picture of the future. It's, a scenario is not present reality. A scenario is an imagined construction in the future, in our minds, about something we will lose in the future. And that's what happens when we are hijacked in the future. We are then bombarded with scenarios of loss that aren't happening right now. They're happening in the future. Right? That's what anxiety is. And so this is why Jesus helps us to be present. Because when we become present, we are leaving the future. We're leaving tomorrow, and we're coming back to the present reality. And that is reversing the hijack. Right? That's what we're, if this is happening, we want, we're tempted, now we're tempted to fight anxiety on its own ground. We're tempted to think, oh, let me fight anxiety in the future. Let me come up with various scenarios that are going to be like guarding against that loss in the future. We want to fight anxiety on its own. That's a mistake. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. That's, that's like playing on anxiety's turf. 
right? Leave the future, right? And then anxiety loses its grip on you if you can stay present, if you can stay present, because anxiety exerts its power in the future. So getting present is, is an, op- anxiety is, is a sign, right? It's a, it's a reading that shows you're living in the future. You've been hijacked into the future. And Jesus' opportunity is to say, hey, take that anxiety and let's get present. Now, my book has a lot of different ways that Jesus helps us get present. I'm going to lead us right now in an actual experience of one of them. And one of them is through breathing. How many of you in your workplace have done practices like mindful breathing? Have you done that? Right. So it's very common, and especially in secular circles. And maybe you have gone through that and you're like, is this okay? Like, is this okay for me to do? Is this seems a little new agey? Or, you know, uh, uh, and then, uh, so what I want to tell you is that actually mindful breathing actually has deep, deep Christian roots that go back to Jesus himself. In John chapter 20, when the disciples are deeply anxious, this is after Jesus has died and resurrected, the disciples are gathered in a room. They're anxious. They're fear and trembling. They've locked the doors, right, because they're so anxious. And then Jesus appears to them, the resurrected Jesus appears to them, and he wants to convey his presence. How does he convey his presence? He does it very mindfully. What does he do? He breathes on them. He breathes his very presence on them. That breath is the physical embodiment of the very invisible presence of the Spirit of Jesus. And Jesus, from the beginning, conveyed to them by mindfully breathing on them. Which makes sense if you think about it, because if we want to think about what is a reality that is always present with us whenever we are alive in the moment, it's that we're breathing, right? And that as we're breathing, we are circulating some presence, some air. And so breath is a perfect sort of embodied practice to say, Jesus is present with me now as I breathe, circulating through me, moving through me as a spirit through my body. And that's the spiritual origins of mindful breathing, which centuries of Christian contemplative prayer people have have adopted and refined into practices of breathing combined with prayer. So we're just going to do like a tiny toe dip of that now. So first we're going to learn how to breathe mindfully. So when we breathe unmindfully, when we're just breathing, uh, oftentimes we breathe from the chest. And that actually is what we tend to do when we're anxious. Right? So what we want to do is actually breathe mindfully, deeply, which is, so you take your, your dominant hand, sit up, kind of sit up straight, um, and then take your dominant hand, put it over your abdomen. Put it over your abdomen. And what I want you to do is concentrate for three breaths to breathe deeply such that the abdomen is expanding gently. Right, not from the chest, from the abdomen. Breathe through your nose, exhale through your mouth. Let's just take, try to take three mindful breaths that way. One more. Okay. Now I want you to practice with just breathing in, like say a count of three or four, two, three, through the nose, and then I want you to exhale double that. So if you're able to do three, exhale on six, uh, on a count of six, or whatever the double is, all right? So just concentrate on that, do three of those.
Okay, we're able to do that. Okay, now we're going to put it together. On the inhale, I just want you to say silently to yourself, Jesus, to actually affirm the presence of the Spirit of Jesus, which is present with you now, as your breath is present with you, in you, as, as your breath is in you, circulating and moving through you. Okay? So on the inhale, just say Jesus, and then exhale on a count of 2x. All right, Let's do that three times today. Let's gently come out of that. Okay, so I looked at the clock. That was four minutes. If you were doing that, if you were really attentive and doing, trying to be present to this exercise, for those four minutes, you were not anxious. Just because you were present. You can't be anxious if you are present. Right? And so mindful breathing is a way for us to anchor and to return to the present. It is not a promise to eliminate anxiety once and for all. I am not saying from now on you will never feel anxious again. Okay. It's not the promise. The promise is when you do feel anxious, you can go through that anxiety through mindful breathing, which is your way of getting present, getting back to the present. Right. So that's how we get present. Now Jesus then takes us present to the Father. To the Father. And how is anxiety an opportunity for Jesus to take us present to the Father? Here again, you have to understand the other thing that's true about anxiety at an existential level. That anxiety is about a what. Anxiety is about what? Look at Jesus' words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, about, or, nor about your body, what you will put on. Anxiety is about a what. It is about some scenario of future loss. Now, when Jesus is preaching, he's preaching to a subsistence economy people. So they are worried about the actual things of eating, drinking, and uh, what they will wear. We're living in an abundance economy, so you may think, well, no, 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 I'm not worried about losing things. I'm more worried about losing personal realities, right? Or about my kids, about my health, or about how I'm perceived in the world. The key to realize is that's still a what? Any future scenario is a what? It's a, it's, a con, it's a construction. It's not a personal reality. Persons are only ex experienced in the present now, in the present moment. Anytime you are thinking about a scenario, you've constructed a what? It's a thing, of, it may be about a person or a thing, but it's a scenario. It's a, it's a construct. Okay? It's revealed by how we talk about these future uh, fears and anxieties. We have like, say you're worried about your kids. You're like, what will my kids be like? 10 years from now. Uh, your health, what will my health be? What will my health be? Your self-image, what will people think about me if this happens or that happens? It's a what, right? It's a construct. It is not real. It's not what you're relating to right now. So any future scenario is a what. And so Jesus has an invitation, an opportunity for us in anxiety. He says, what you will drink, what you will drink, and he contrasts that to, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, after all these impersonal realities, after all these scenarios, right, that are guaranteed, that are, that where loss is not happening, all these things, and 
Your heavenly Father knows, present verb, knows that you need them all. What Jesus here is inviting us is to one of the most important steps of spiritual growth for any Christian, which is that we move from the what of the Father to the who of the Father. So the what of the Father is where we are going to the Father for what. We're looking for God to provide us certain things, certain scenarios, personal or impersonal things. That's a, those are still scenarios. Those are still what's we want from the Father, right? This is, right, just like we're tempted to fight anxiety on, it, on the ground of its future, we're tempted to think, well, okay, then what God needs to do if anxiety is a future scenario is God give us a, like, better, secure future scenario where we will never experience any loss. That's what we think we want from that. So we are praying, like, God, don't make this happen. Please not make that happen. Please make sure this happens, right? That's okay. That, that, that's, we can do that. The Father wants us to ask him for what's. So it's fine to start there. It's, in fact, we all, it's a natural place to start there. But if we stay there, if we stay there, and we are only primarily relating to the Father as a supplier of what's, as a supplier of various future scenarios that, in which loss will never happen to us, that will backfire on us. Because then we will come to believe that, look, God's supposed to do that. God has promised that. He will give, us, give me a future scenario of loss, guaranteed against all loss. And that will backfire on you because God has actually never promised that. We may want that. It's totally natural to want that. God's never actually promised that we will have a future scenario of life where we are guaranteed and lost. And if we keep coming to him only asking for that, we're going to just start like, thinking about the Father that way. Right? And then we will be disappointed. And then we're like, oh man, God really let me down. So this is what happens, what anxiety does, because we are simply relating to the what of God. And a heavenly supply chain is very different from a heavenly father. Right? We are never promised a heavenly supply chain of reliability, predictability, and guaranteed against loss. We're, we're, we're promised a heavenly father, and that's the who, the who of the father, which we can experience in the very presence of loss, where we can actually experience when the storm hits us, when the fire seems to come upon us to wreak devastation in our lives. But the answer is not fundamentally that there, we are promised a scenario that, that, that will never happen again. We are promised a who, the very presence of the Father who is with us amidst loss, right? in, even in the present reality. Now, my book has a lot of different opportunities for us to go through that to actually experience a deeper who and a deeper understanding, which, by the way, includes, it includes the true future scenario that we're promised, which is very different than a scenario that is guaranteed against loss. Right? So you'll have to read the book for that, but it's like the most amazing scenario that we're promised, but it's actually a scenario that takes us through loss, takes us through loss to restoration, to resurrection. Right? But the resurrection promise is a promise of loss, we only get through resurrection, through death, through the loss of all losses. And in the same way, we only can go through anxiety when we're willing to go through it with Jesus, the author and guarantor of the promise of restoration, right? which is not the promise that you will never experience loss. In fact, it is predicated on the, on the expectation you will experience loss, but you will go through it with Jesus in the hope of some restoration on the other side. And that's how we come to become people who are shaped by the who, 
the who of the Father we relate to right now. Now, you know, my, my book does have a lot of different ways that I encourage, help, equip, teach people to experience this who. There's one opportunity that my book cannot deliver in terms of a very profound opportunity to experience the who of the Father amidst your anxiety, and that's worship. That's especially collective worship with other Christians. My book cannot provide that for you. I write about it, I write about its importance, and its importance is because collective worship, when we gather together in body, that's like the collective musical version of mindful breathing. Right? That's when we can leave kind of the hijack of our future and we come present to each other where, where God dwells and to God in a worship. And as we breathe, which we must breathe as we sing, we are breathing and circulating the very presence of Jesus, the very presence of Jesus in worship. You may be asking like, wow, you know, you're here, Curtis, still at the river after all these years. It's very rare, by the way, for somebody who has had to resign from a church in kind of, you know, <laughs> catastrophic, you know, we say not shameful, but I felt it as a shameful experience. Like, well, you're still here? Why am I here? I'm here because, one, this church was a tremendous presence of the Spirit in taking us through that, through that experience of loss. But I'm also here, fundamentally, on Sunday mornings because I need to worship because I need to practice that presence of the Father that is present through our anxiety, through our fears and our loss, even when the fire and the storms can seem like they're ready to engulf us. So let's stand and let's worship and come present to the Father by the Spirit. <laughs>